All right, we're going to get started here. We're going to be talking about the minor prophets a little bit this morning. And if you have the notes you're following along online, you notice it says the 12. And it's like, well, why did I say that and not the minor prophets? Well, I've never liked the term minor prophets because it makes them sound like they're not that important. Because it's like, oh, they're just minor. We don't need to talk about those. That's just little. Um, and no, they're very important. And also, um, when we, we come to the, let's just say, Hebrew or Jewish Old Testament, in other words, what Jesus' Bible would have been, it would have been the 12. What I mean by that is that they were all essentially one book. They were all on one scroll. They were all connected together. And so you'll, you'll see in a lot of books, they'll talk about the 12 or the book of the 12, something like that. And so that's why you have that there in your notes or if you're following along online, it'll say that. Before we, we get into that, um, I wanted to kind of use this morning a little bit as review because I realize we've been going like 100 miles an hour. Maybe some of you guys are like, yeah, that's great. Maybe some of you is like, I don't know what we're talking about. What's going on? Ezekiel, wheels within wheels. What, is, what are we talking about? Uh, you know, sky monsters, what? Um, all, all kinds of stuff. So I wanted to slow down a little bit. If you have questions, I'd be more than happy to, uh, well, I'd be more than happy for you to ask them. I don't know if they will be answered today, but I will answer them at some point if it's a good question. Um, so that's where we're going, just a little bit. If we can get through Hosea, Joel, Amos, I'll be happy. And you're like, man, we're only going to get through like the first chunk. What about all the other ones? It's like, well, we're going to go through them relatively quick next week. And so, like I think with Jonah, you don't, you don't need to, we don't need to spend a ton of time in Jonah. We've spent enough time in Jonah. And Nahum, Nahum is basically just like Jonah's dream come true, um, because Nahum is about the destruction of Nineveh. And so it's like, oh, there you go, Nahum, Jonah's dream come true. Um, so we'll, we'll move through those relatively quickly, but that's where we're going this morning. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for just this opportunity that we've had over these last couple weeks. Uh, we're halfway done now and moving forward, looking through this, this second half of the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that you would um, illumine our hearts, open our eyes, that we would understand what you have for us in uh, the prophets and some of these smaller books that we oftentimes uh, pass over. I pray that you would help us to understand them, give us insight. And Lord, I pray that as a result, we would worship you more, that we would love you, that we would know you for who you are and uh, be in awe. I pray that you would bless this time. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so, um, and then also I forgot, there's notes on the back for, if you have like the day of the Lord, day of Yahweh on the back, we might talk about that a little bit. I wasn't sure when to stick this in, so this, this morning might be a little more choppier than usual. You're like, ah, I can't handle this. We'll be okay. Everything's going to be okay. We'll all sing kumbaya and get along. Okay, I wanted to kind of, now that we're done with, we've done Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, I want to give just a brief summary. It's an oversimplification, but I, I was like, oh, this is actually... This I came up with on the spot. I, Natalie was asking me, like, hey, what, what is, uh, so, like, what's going on in the prophets? Like, what are they doing? Like, all this stuff. And I was like, well, I think you boil it down to this and this. And I was thinking about it. I was like, that's actually really good. It's like my one moment of grandeur. And I was like, wow, I think that's actually true. Um, summary of what's going on. So first I would say this, the, and it's like, I don't know where to write this. Well, just keep it in your head or write it down somewhere. Summary of what the prophets are doing. I think Basically, they're, they're preaching two messages. One is judgment, okay? Like, I mean, if you guys have been here, 
has that been like central in all the prophets? Like they're just talking about judgment a ton, okay? And what's important to note is that that's not coming out of the blue. That's actually going back to what we would call the Mosaic Covenant, okay? And if you remember this refrain, this is another passage. You don't need to memorize the whole chapter, but you need to memorize Leviticus 26, okay? Leviticus 26, this is really helpful. In Leviticus 26, this is after, you know, Moses is laying out the law and the code and what the priests have to do and all this stuff, right? He's laying all this out, and he says, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. And he gives like 10 verses. This is in Leviticus 26. Blessings for obedience. If you keep my covenant, you will be blessed. And then that's like the first 10 verses. And then the big chunk of the chapter, which is like 40 verses, is if you disobey, you're going to be cursed, okay? And so even within Leviticus, I think Moses is starting to clue us in. It's kind of this like, oh man, we know what's around the corner, preview of coming attractions, just by the text. Are they going to obey? Probably not. No, they're actually going to fall, they're going to sin, and there's going to be curses coming for disobedience. And so the prophets, what they're doing is they're not making up anything new. They're going back to the Mosaic Covenant. They're going back to Leviticus, in particular Deuteronomy, the last couple chapters of Deuteronomy, if you look at there, you even have the people saying, hey, all the words of the law, we're going to do. And the people are going to say, amen. And they, they swear themselves into the covenant. And so if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. You guys got that? So that, that's, again, this is an oversimplification, but I think it's helpful. Prophets are preaching judgment, okay, because of the Mosaic covenant. Second, you're seeing this other note of restoration or hope, okay, that, yes, judgment is going to come. You are going to be judged because of your sin. You have failed the covenant. You have transgressed God's law, and you're going to go into judgment. But on the other side of judgment, there's what? Restoration. There is hope. And I would argue, again, that's not you know, anything new, but actually the prophets are saying because of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, there's going to be hope. So the Mosaic covenant is something that we would call something like bilateral, meaning, hey, you do this, and I'll do this. You do this, and I'll do this. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'm going to curse you. The Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, we would call something like unilateral covenants, meaning regardless of what the other party is going to do. Like, like regardless, you could be just horrible, you could be great, you could whatever. God is saying, I'm going to do this. So like with the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord, and this is kind of this um, Genesis 15, this image of, of God passing through the pieces. Abraham's asleep during the covenant ceremony. Like, he has no part in the ceremony. He's just sleeping there. And so what God is saying is, hey, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. There's going to be a special seed coming from your line, and I'm going to give you this land. That, that does not depend on disobedience or obedience. God is just saying, I'm going to do this. Does that make sense to everyone, right? It's unilateral. It's one party saying, I'm going to do this. And the same thing with the Davidic covenant. There are aspects in there that are bilateral, but generally speaking, it's a covenant of saying, hey, I'm going to do this. The seed of David, I'm going to bless, and I'm going to give him a kingdom, and it's never going to pass away, and the people are going to dwell in the land and all this stuff, okay? So that's a real simple, you're coming to Isaiah, and you can get those two, I think, points to kind of hang your hat on. It's like, okay, what's going on in Isaiah? Okay, well, he's preaching judgment because they've sinned against God in the Mosaic Covenant. They have disobeyed. But he's also preaching hope. 
not just willy-nilly, but because of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. Does that make sense to everyone? Does that maybe help going through the prophets? That's a, that's a decent summary of what we've been talking about these last couple of weeks. And so if that was helpful to you, you can thank Natalie, because Natalie was like, hey, I need help. And I was like, hey, here you go. So hopefully that helps you. Okay, now turn to Hosea. Hosea, if you're not already there, I heard that there might be some high school students joining us. Yeah, high schoolers. That's great. You need your Bibles. Girls in the back over there. Those are the only ones I see. Okay. We're, this is a Bible class. We're, we're spending a lot of time in the text and flipping, so you want to have your, your hands moving. Okay. Hosea. Um, where do I start here? Well, okay, if you have the notes, okay, you see date, author, setting, purpose, stuff like that. Okay, the name of the book is the guy who wrote the book, okay? So, like, if the name of the book is Hosea, who wrote Hosea? Hosea, okay, yeah. I'm just, there, and the reason why I say this is because you go into, you do seminary and Bible college and all this stuff, and they'll just spend tons of time, like, oh, who wrote this? Why is this? It's like, hey, we believe the Bible. We believe it's inerrant. I'm not going to spend just tons of time dying there, okay? But if you want to talk to me about that, I'd be more than happy to. The name of the book is the person who wrote the book, okay? Um, by the way, if you guys have the, what the Old Testament authors care about, is anyone still reading along? Anyone? A couple? Okay, cool. Is anyone watching the videos online? Anyone? A couple? Cool. Okay, great. Cool. Hopefully those are helpful. Um, if you have the book, you know, what the Old Testament authors really cared about, I know I dissed that book like week one, but the chapter in, on the Minor Prophets is actually really good. And the reason why is because Stephen Dempster wrote it. And Stephen Dempster is my homie. He is awesome. So that chapter is really good. Read that chapter. Um, but I, I just had to, had to plug that in. That's a good chapter. Okay, Hosea. Hosea. Um, kind of the, the timing of this. He, he's writing early, okay? And he's ministering in the northern kingdom before they go into exile, okay? So when, when's, the, when's the, here, pop quiz, pop quiz. When does the northern kingdom get taken into exile, like the big main exile? Anyone? Starts with a seven, and then it has like two, twice, 722. Yeah, yeah, okay, 722, okay? And uh, who's the nation that, that takes them into exile? Assyria, okay? So Hosea is ministering in that kingdom before Assyria comes, okay? Does that make sense? That, that's what's going on. Here's the setting here. So he's writing even before Isaiah. It's so like if Isaiah is like our foundation, he's likely even ministering before him in the northern kingdom, okay? Now notice... What's going on here? So, again, have your Bibles open. Hosea 1. Verse 2, he says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the, Lord, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Wow, great start to this book, okay? Um, all kinds of people do all kinds of weird things. I think the most natural way to read the text is that Hosea marries a prostitute, and she was a prostitute before and after. She, she is an unfaithful woman, okay? Now, I don't think this is a parable. I don't think this is allegorical or anything like that. I think these are real historical events with real people that really happened, okay? And notice what he does. It's, well, you can even see why is he doing this. It illustrates what? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Their marriage illustrates Israel forsaking Yahweh. Their spiritual adultery. Okay, that's what is going on here. And notice verse 3, Hosea, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of um, Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
Okay, now notice what he does here grammatically. I think this is significant. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Keep going down to, you know, judgment. Notice in verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. So you guys see the difference between verses 3 and verse 6? Verse 3 says, so he went and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse 6, she conceived again. Hosea doesn't say she bore to him a son. So in other words, I don't think this child is Hosea's son. Does that make sense? I think even in this process, she's still adulterous. And you see um, verse 8, and she had weaned no mercy. She conceived and bore a son, another one, okay? So I think Hosea, you know, his actual child, I think, is only the first one. And, and all these, these names, they're wonderful names. If you want to name your child, I'd suggest go to Hosea 1. Great names. It's a joke. Um, yeah, I mean, you see verse 9, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So, so the child is a sign of Israel's unfaithfulness, that they have forsaken the Lord, their God. And we see here, you know, it's a sign of judgment, but if you're following along, I have some of these on the slides here, um, that there's still even hope, right? So that introduction I already gave, there's still hope. You see in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. What does that sound like? Which covenant? Abrahamic covenant. That there's still hope for Israel. Why? Because of God's unilateral covenant that he made with Abraham, despite their sin, they're still going to be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, which is the name of that last son, right? It shall be said to them, children of the living God. They will be God's people. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, the divided kingdom, will be united. And they shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head, one leader, one king, one ruler. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So there's hope. There's hope. And by the way, if you have the notes, point one, God's judging love depicted. You could say um, that kind of deals with external relationship. Okay? God's external relationship with his people. And then number two, God's judging love described, you could say internal relationship, such as kind of need something more external, point one, second, dealing more with the internal. So their names, like I said, they mean punishment, no mercy from God, not my people, but there's still hope on the other side of judgment. If you flip over chapter two, verse 12, this is an amazing word study. Maybe I'll print this page out for you guys or something like that. But it's interesting to see how the prophets use vine and fig tree I know we've already talked about that in Isaiah, but it just, it pops up everywhere. And you see it again here in Hosea 2.12, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. So this picture of Israel's great prosperity, this amazing prosperity that they had in the days of Solomon, God's saying, no, that's going to be forgotten. They are going to be completely forgotten. I don't know why this died on me. I hadn't done this in a while, but now I will try again. Uh, let's try here. Might turn on. If not, you'll just be completely lost and without hope. Um, but you see that that uh, vines and fig trees, like I mentioned, come down to uh, verse 16. Hopefully, I can get this up on the. Oh, there we go. Great. Awesome. You come down to verse 16 here. Um, 
and you actually see that if, if there's one thing, and you guys, there's a YouTube video for those of you doing the extra credit stuff. There's a YouTube video that actually talks a, a lot about this because Hosea talks a lot about a second exodus, and there's some difficult verses in, in, trans, in how we get to that and how Matthew in particular picks up on this. Um, but you see here in Hosea 2, 15 through um, uh, 19 and 20, that he's already hinting at a new exodus that's going to come. Look with me at the end of verse 15. Is at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He's already comparing it to the first exodus. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, none of these foreign gods, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant. Oh, man, a new covenant. On that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And he's actually alluding to another covenant here. What, what covenant would that be? He's talking about beasts, animals. Someone say Noahic? Yeah, Noahic covenant, right? He, he, he makes a, a covenant there with creation in Genesis 9. And I will abolish the bow. And you actually see that. Where else was there like a bow up in the sky as like a sign of God putting up his like rainbow, right? He, he's, he's saying, I'm never going to judge the earth again through water. And you see that same illusion here. I will abolish the rainbow is what he's saying there, the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So there's this glorious hope. This, these unfaithful people of Israel, they will be restored. God will save his people, and there's going to be a second covenant, excuse me, a second exodus and a new covenant and finally going to give God's people rest. You come to chapter 3. Um, Hosea redeems his wife. He buys her back. Uh, and you see here in verse 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So there's going to be this period of judgment. There's going to be this period where, let's just say they ain't doing too hot. Okay, They ain't doing too good. Many days without king or prince. They're going to have no leader. It's kind of like, maybe like going to be like the days of Judges, right? Where there's no king in the land and everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. This isn't going to be good. But then after this, verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Okay, so at writing this, is David alive? No. David's been dead a long time, okay? So very clearly, Hosea is not talking about actual David, right? He's talking about someone from David's line. Someone from David's line, a descendant of him, is going to be their king. And they're going to seek Yahweh, their God. And so you see Yahweh and David, in one sense, kind of put together there in that one verse. And they shall come um, in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And I can't get into all of this right now, but that phrase in particular, in the latter days, very key throughout the Old Testament. Something that's going to come to pass way later on, for lack of a better word, okay? We would say maybe eschatology, in the last days, something like that. And so you see there's going to be judgment, but there's going to be a time of intense refining. And this is, you could say this is God's love refining his people. He's going to make his bride pure, okay? He's going to get rid of all the sinfulness, and it's going to be painful. It's going to be judgment, but why is God doing it? Ultimately, because he loves his people, his people right? Does that make sense? He's refining his bride. He's making his people clean because he loves them. 
And so that's chapters 1 to 3. That's this external relationship, God's judging love depicted. Point 2, okay? Kind of this internal relationship. Dealing more with this internal relationship. You see in chapter 4, verse 1, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land, right? There's swearing, there's lying, there's murder, there's stealing, there's committing adultery. What does that maybe remind you guys of? Like, I don't know, some commandments, there's maybe 10 of them, right? Like, like the, the prophet's making it clear. Like, what have they transgressed? Like, they've broken God's law, right? This is what they've done. This is why judgment is coming. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love. It's a key word for thinking of God's covenant love. It's even alluding back to God's covenant promises. They, they have no knowledge of God in the land, right? And if we remember Isaiah, he's talking about the whole earth, the whole land, it's the exact same word, is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. Well, here, chapter 4, verse 1, that's clearly not the case. There is no knowledge of God. And you see in chapter 4, verse 6, for I desire steadfast love, same word over there, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Your worship means nothing if you do not know and love me. That is what God is desiring. Jump over to chapter 8. Chapter 8. Set the trumpet to your lips. Proclaim this. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they've transgressed my covenant. He makes it very clear. They have sinned against God's covenant and sinned against him. They've rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, we, Israel, we know you. They do not. They do not know him. Chapter 9, verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 3, he alludes that they're going to be taken into exile. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. They're not going to remain in Israel. But Ephraim, another name for Israel, shall return to Egypt. They're going to be taken back into the place where so many years ago God called them out. They're going to go back in exile, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So they're going back into exile. And we jump forward to chapter 11, and we see here that God will not utterly forsake Israel. He will not utterly forsake Israel. You see in chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so you see Israel compared to you know, the, the firstborn son of God, to make it simple, right? And he's saying, I, I loved you. I cannot leave you in Egypt. I'm going to call you back. And you see here in uh, chapter 11, verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, and how can I treat you like Zeboim? And you're like, I don't know what those places were. I, don't, I didn't either. I had to look them up. Those are two cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's saying, I'm not going to leave you like those cities. I'm not going to do that. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And so you see in very clear language the love of God for his people. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One, in your midst. Jump over to verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So God's love for his people is going to lead to what? A second exodus, right? You see this over and over 
and the prophets. He's not going to abandon. He's not going to utterly forsake his people. And the book ends with this call. Hey, Israel, you need to repent. 14 verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And so return. And so that is uh, Hosea hyperspeed. And hopefully maybe it's like, okay, I, can, I think I can read Hosea now. I got a big picture of what, what's going on. Okay, Joel. Joel. The book of Joel. So Hosea is ministering in the northern kingdom. Joel is ministering in the southern kingdom. Okay, he's ministering to the tribe of Judah. Um, the dating of the book is tricky. Um, and it's kind of like you see this with like Joel and, uh, let me see, Obadiah. Like Obadiah just says like, first one, the vision of Obadiah. Like typically some of these other prophets are like, hey, this is who I am. And I ministered in the reign of this king. And this thing happened. And it's like, oh, okay, we can date that. And then some of these prophets are like, I saw this. It's like, when did this happen? I don't know. Um, and there's some other biblical things we can do to kind of narrow that down. Um, but Joel, a little bit um, tricky. He's ministering before exile. Um, I would argue for an early date there. And he talks about this horrible locust plague. Okay? Joel 1. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. It's like, whoa, okay, you need to tell anyone and everyone, and they need to know about this thing. You're like, what is it? Verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Whoa. So this isn't just one massive thing of locusts. It's actually like four waves of locusts, like just like locusts on locusts on locusts. And they just destroy everything. They eat and destroy everything. Um, you typically don't have this, to my understanding, in the Middle East as much, but still, like in, in um, Africa, like locusts can ruin like the whole harvest season. And, you know, people will starve. And so literally what you have here is everything is going to be destroyed. Th these locusts are going to eat and destroy everything. Verse 7, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. I, I just think it's amazing, vine and fig tree, over and over and over. This amazing prosperity that you had, completely gone. The good old days, uh-uh. Verse 12, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be horrible. And then you see, verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So they're, they're, it's a call to repentance. You need to repent. Consecrate a fast. This is verse 14. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord, alas for the day. The locusts were so terrible. Is that what he says? You guys see this? Verse 15. Joel 1.15. He calls them to lament. Uh, you guys, this is so terrible. Why is he calling them to lament? Verse 15, alas for the day, what does it say? For the day of the Lord is near. Okay, so the locusts have already happened, okay? He's not calling them to, you know, be sorrowful and lament over that. He's actually saying, hey, that was a warning sign. The, the locusts are a warning sign of this next horrible thing, okay? And I would argue some people, they think chapter 2 
just talking about locusts. I think that is not true. <laughs> I didn't want to use a stronger word. Okay, but in Joel 2, it seems like Joel is making it very clear that there is going to be this army, a literal army, I would suggest, that the earth has never before seen and they will never see again. Okay, This is, I would argue, eschatological. This is scary stuff. Okay, And this is what they need to be warned of. The day of Yahweh is near. These locusts are just a wake-up call. You see that there in point one, wake-up call, this recent disaster. We move to point two, day of the Lord's destruction. Look at this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. This horrible judgment is coming. And look at how he describes this. A day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Okay, like that's pretty expansive. Whoa, okay. I don't think he's talking about bugs. Fire devours, uh, before, fire devours before them, and behind them like a, a flame burns. Their land, the land is like the Garden of Eden. It's this amazing, prosperous place. But behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Even if it was an animal, he's not talking about locusts, right? And like war horses they run is with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains like, whoa, okay? What I'm trying to say is he's not talking about bugs, okay? I think he's talking about this great, amazing, just army that's going to just destroy anyone and everything. And this is the day of the Lord that they need to be afraid of. And look at this. Here's why they need to be afraid of it. Verse 10 the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw uh, their shining. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. So this is an army that the Lord is going to use to judge his people, but is God outside control of it? No. He's going to use this army. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? He is going to judge. Yet even now. Verse 12, Joel 2, verse 12, in light of that, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments, not, not this external business. The problem is your heart. You need to return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Does, does anyone know? What does that sound like? What passage? Anyone know? It's Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. And it's one of the most clear passages where Yahweh says, this is who I am, my nature, my, my, you know, my characteristics, my attributes. This is what I do. And that's what Joel is picking up on. You can repent because of who God is. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Everyone needs to repent. And, and I, I love what he does here. Like, who needs to repent? Verse 15. Joel 2, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a psalm assembly. Gather the people. Gather the congregation. Assemble the elders. Get the children. Even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave, leave his room and the bride her chamber. It's like, like anyone and everyone needs to repent. Even if it's your wedding day, repentance is more important than getting married. You need to Repent. No matter who you are, this is a, a universal call to God's people and saying, repent. 
judgment is going to come, a judgment unlike you have ever seen before, you need to repent. Joel is an amazing book on, I mean, really, not the foundation of, of, of repentance, but he, he contributes a lot to our doctrine of repentance, okay? So Joel 2 is, is well worth your time to, to meditate on it. See that point three called a true repentance? You can repent because God is gracious and merciful. Point four, um, this is kind of the second half here. I can't spend a lot of time on it, but you see in verse 22, here's our fig tree and vine again. Tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. They will be judged literally, materially, and physically, but there's going to be a restoration, not just of the people's hearts, but of their land. Uh, you shall eat plenty and be satisfied. Let me jump down to verse 28 here. Joel 2.28, this is a key prophecy uh, that Peter picks up in Acts. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, I, I can't get into this. But, but Peter doesn't quote this whole passage. It's actually interesting where he stops. He stops on the, what I would say is the land promises and the, the restoration to the land. He's saying, yeah, hey, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In those days, I'll pour it out. I'll show wonders in heavens and on the earth, blood and fire. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then Peter stops right there. He doesn't quote verse 32, I would argue, because that's still to come to pass, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so there's this amazing promise that the Lord is going to pour out his spirit on all people. Um, chapter 3, uh, verse 1, he's going to, Yahweh's going to gather the nations and enter into judgment with them. Verse 14, he says, for the day of the Lord is near. Let me see what I've got up there. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know, Joel 3, 17, that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And so there's this glorious promise of God restoring his people, judgment for the enemies of Israel, but restoration for Israel. Okay, I know it's like, man, that was fast, and we're not going to get as far as I wanted. That's okay. Uh, everything's hunky-dory, okay? Everything's fine. We'll, we'll catch up at some point. Um, I wanted to spend this last little section here talking about the day of the Lord, okay? So that's that extra um, page if you picked it up. Um, I'm not going to talk about every verse. Um, in fact, yeah, okay, I made sure I have my verses. Um, I'm not going to talk about every verse. What's interesting to note, and by the way, this isn't every passage. There's, I just looked up all the passages that literally say day of Yahweh. It's actually just day of Yahweh. But all those passages, and I just was like, okay, I'll print them all out for you guys. And I also put in some more that doesn't say exactly day of Yahweh, but I think he's talking about the exact same thing. What's interesting to note with um, the day of Yahweh um, is that it's not, it usually is referring to judgment. Like in Joel, he's talking clearly about judgment. But there's also sections there where if you look in context, he's also referring to hope, right? Where the Spirit is going to be poured out. That's positive. That's good, okay? So the day of Yahweh is not just a, um, you know, time of judgment. It usually is, but not always. Dwayne Garrett here, um, I thought this quote was really good. The day of Yahweh is a moment at which God decisively acts to judge or to save. 
perhaps after a long period of apparent inactivity. The day of Yahweh is simply a moment in which Yahweh dramatically intervenes. Okay? So it's not just day of Yahweh and they're all referring to the exact same event. Does that make sense? They're referring to a point in time when God is going to act in a dramatic and drastic way. Okay? Typically judgment, but there's also um, some aspects of, of restoration. You even see this, that some people will talk about how the day of Yahweh just refers to um, God judging like Israel, right? Like, hey, you need to watch out because the day of Yahweh is coming. And that means Assyria is going to wreck you guys and Babylon's going to, you know, mess you guys up. Well, notice, I thought this was amazing. Malachi 4 verse 5, this is on the back page of your notes. Like, like Malachi is way after all this stuff, okay? They, they've already been, they've been taken into exile and they've already been even brought back, Okay? And Malachi 4, 5 ends with this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. So, so he's still talking about day of Yahweh. Clearly, he's not talking about the judgment that's going to come upon them between Assyria and Babylon. Yes? What do you mean? Day of Yahweh, is it going to be for individuals or corporate people? Um, I would, generally speaking say, corporate. So, yeah, I mean, you see in Joel 2.28, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, which, by the way, is referring not just to Israel. And so that's why Peter picks that up in Acts 2, um, because he's talking to Gentiles. So, yeah, it depends on context. So, like, the day of Yahweh, yeah, does he pour out his spirit on people groups? Yes, but people groups are made up of individuals. So it's kind of a both and, um, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I thought Malachi 4.5 is a significant case for why that can't be just referring to judgment. This is from Tom Schreiner. It seems that there's continuity in Zephaniah, another minor prophet, and the other prophets between days of the Lord in history, like the judgment of Jerusalem in 586, and the final day of the Lord. I thought this was really good. Yeah, it can be referring to immediate judgment, but especially, I would argue, in Joel 2, and Malachi 4, 5, they're obviously talking about some other day to come. In other words, there are days of the Lord before the arrival of the final day of the Lord. And so I wanted to give an illustration. Maybe this is like, this is as far as my art skills go, by the way. Um, don't ask for anything else. This has been helpful for me in understanding like prophets, okay, and, and what they're doing, okay. So you got your little prophet down here. Can you guys see him? He's walking this way, and he's about to do some mountain climbing. Um, no, not really. It's, it's just his vision, okay? So he sees that first little mountain, okay? He, he's looking at it, and the way it is, is maybe he can't see this, see the second mountain range? See that first little peak, right? You guys see that? From where he's standing, he might not be able to see that, okay? And so when he's prophesying, hey, because you, you have to, maybe this is just the way my brain works, but you have to do something with this. That the prophets are saying, hey, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a new exodus. When the Messiah comes, there's going to be a new creation. The world is going to be changed. It's going to be this awesome, amazing thing. Okay, we come to the New Testament. Messiah comes. Does all of that happen? No. Right? Like, like and this is why, like, in Acts 1, it's, I love this passage. The, after the resurrection, Jesus, it says he's, he's teaching his disciples for 40 days about the kingdom. And then afterwards, they're like, Hey, Jesus, like, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because 
I think the disciples are reading their Old Testament and they're going, hey, when Messiah comes, all these glorious things are going to happen. And so they're saying, hey, Jesus, when are you going to do those other things? And he says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know, but the Lord has fixed the day. And so what I think you have going on here is the Old Testament prophets are seeing something like this. Mark was helping me with an illustration. It's kind of like, you know, if your hand is like this, like you're seeing, you know, okay, like this finger, this finger. It's like, okay, I kind of see that mountain range. But it's not until you turn it sideways that you're actually seeing the timing of those things. So if you remember 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 10, right? A verse that people will go to. It's like, hey, the prophets don't know what they're talking about. They search inquired carefully, uh, you know, when the sufferings of the Messiah and his subsequent glories would come. And they're like, see, the prophets don't know what they're talking about. They're just saying, hey, all this stuff is going to happen but we don't even know what that stuff is. I would say no. I think the prophets saw those mountain peaks and they knew exactly what was going to happen. They didn't know the timing. They didn't know the timing of when. And 1 Peter is actually amazing. He says, search inquired carefully about the sufferings of the Messiah and his subsequent glories. Like, those are specific prophecies. I would argue they're reading Isaiah 53. The sufferings of the Messiah. I mean, Isaiah 53 is the clearest text that talks about the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, and his subsequent glories. Remember the end of Isaiah 53? All these things are going to happen, and then the Lord is going to reward his suffering servant. All these glories are going to come. And so I would argue, no, the prophets are actually seeing clearly some of these mountain ranges, but they don't know the timing. They don't know how long this gap is going to be in between. Does that make sense? Does that illustration help anyone? Maybe just some of us who are wired differently. Um, I do think that there was, there are some mountain ranges, let's just say, a mountain at least, that was not revealed to the prophets. Can anyone think of that in the New Testament that is revealed? So like, uh, maybe Paul will say, like, this is a mystery. The church, yeah, I think the church is very clearly not mentioned in the Old Testament. And so when you come to passages like Ephesians, and, I mean, Paul uses it a lot, but he says, hey, We've received more revelation that the prophets did not have, and the mystery is this. Hey, the church is a thing, okay? And so I think that's, I didn't actually intend this, but Mark was like, oh, wow, that first mountain peak could kind of like be the church. I'm not seeing that. I was like, yeah, I totally meant that, yeah. Um, that's great. Yeah, I'm glad you saw that. Um, no, it's not the case. Just wanted to, I was going to keep going, but we're running out of time. This is really good from Dempster, my homeboy. Uh, he's not a dispensationalist, but hey, I like this. This guy's this guy's onto something here. Whereas Old Testament prophecy looked forward to the to one day of the Lord. Again, they, they maybe couldn't distinguish those mountain ranges. The New Testament divides this event into two phases. A day of forgiveness and reconciliation during which Jesus atones for sins by his death. That has happened, right? And point two, a coming day of judgment when the regal, the king, Messiah, Jesus Christ, will return to the earth. The inauguration of the first phase is the beginning of the end, hence the urgency of the New Testament's message. And so what you can kind of look at is if you're looking at a timeline, right? Those first two days of the Lord. The first day has happened. The next thing on the clock, right, for example, is point two. And so this is the urgency of the New Testament. Hey, you need to repent. Hey, th this is what you need to do. The day is near. This is blah, 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 blah. They're not saying, hey, this is going to happen tomorrow. They're saying this is the next thing on the clock. There's no other thing besides when the Lord returns and he's going to set up his kingdom, he's going to judge evildoers, and he's going to restore his people to himself. Does that help? Maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. The prophets are 
you know, I, I joked about this with Ezekiel, but you know, we go to Ezekiel, we read a couple chapters, and she's like, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to go read the Gospels because it's just so much easier. Um, that's true. It is easier, right? But Timothy calls us to work hard, to study the word that we would not be ashamed, that we would rightly handle the word of truth. So just because something is difficult doesn't mean we don't have responsibility to do it, right? And so that's why I, I think it's important to slow down and look at something like this, um, how the prophets are working here and what they're doing. So you have more days of the Lord there. And oh, I got, I got to real quick. I know I'm past time. Just turn to Amos real quick. I want to talk about this because it's really cool. If you got to leave, you're missing out. Um, but that's okay. No, I'm just kidding. It'll be online. Amos, this is really significant. Maybe this will get you excited for next week, okay? Amos. So again, he's same thing. He's in the northern kingdom, okay? Uh, in the days of Uzziah. Who else ministered in the days of Uzziah? Big, big prophet. Isaiah, yeah, right? In the days of, uh, of Uzziah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Okay, he's ministering around the same time. Look at what he does here. Um, there's judgment coming. And, and the whole question is, we'll get into this next week, but is God's judgment righteous and fair? And look at what he does here. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Okay, real quick. Um, actually, you don't even need to look at that because, yeah, that's later on. We won't even get to that. We, Mike mentioned this in his sermon. We've talked about this a lot. When Hebrew says something three times, what is it? Like, that's like the definition, right? Hey, holy, holy, holy. Hey, man, he's the very definition of holiness. It's perfect. It's a standard. That, that's the number, okay? Look what he does here. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. So, like, they have sinned so much that they've even gone above that. You guys see that in the text there? For three transgressions. They've sinned so much. Man, they're the standard. It's so wicked, and it's even worse than that. And for four, I will not provoke the punishment. Okay? He's ministering the northern kingdom, by the way. Just, just keep with me here. Notice in chapters 1 and 2. See how you see that over and over again? Look at the text. Chapter 1, verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Chapter 1, verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Okay? For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four. For three transgressions of Moab. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 4, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So the northern kingdom is like hearing this message. They're like, oh, yeah, get them, God. Uh-oh. You're getting all the pagan nations. You guys are so wicked, right? You guys see that? And he's kind of, this is actually interesting. When you do it geographically, the prophet is hitting all the cities around Israel, the northern kingdom. He's hitting all these nations. It's almost kind of like he's circling in on who? The northern kingdom, Israel. And then at the, in chapter 2, verse 4, for three transgressions of Judah, they're like, ha, ah, yeah, take that, southern kingdom. Ha, ah, you guys are wicked. And this is what's interesting. Judah's the seventh. Like, you guys even know this. That's like the Lord's number, man, seven. That's like perfect. That's complete. That's even better than three, right? Like seven. We see that all the time in the Old Testament. It's complete. It's really interesting looking this up in like Old Testament oracles. This would be very common is to do like things in series of seven. And so when he gets to seven here on Judah, the northern kingdom thinks, hey, this is done. And then notice chapter two, verse six. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. So Israel, the northern kingdom, kind of like this appendix to the oracle, that's where the Lord actually zeroes in on. Look, look at how long his judgment is, right? You even see way more verses. And so we'll get into that next week. I, that kind of excited me. Maybe it doesn't excite you the same way. But it's pretty cool how the prophets are doing that, okay? And he's zeroing in on judging the northern kingdom, Israel. And the question of Amos is, is God, is it too much? Is he judging? Is it, is it you know, is it not partial? Is it correct? Is it true? And Amos says, yes, yes it is. So we'll get back to that. Uh, Amos chapter 3 next week, and we will fly through the other ones. All right? If you have questions, come talk to me. You are dismissed.